we're going to be looking at one particular style of writing in the Bible, and it's called narrative, or the stories of the Bible. What I can tell you is that I'm going to be saying some things that's probably going to be different than how you've learned them or heard them taught, and you're going to react to that potentially. Um, but I'm sorry, I can't help that. Uh, the reality is people don't know how to handle the, the stories of the Bible right, and so we misteach them and we do it wrongly. And I'm going to try to fix that for you in a way that you will then be able to read the stories of the Bible and actually understand what's being taught. Now, as we do this class... We have to remember everything in the first class. The first class applies in the whole Bible. So everywhere you look in the Bible, there's a theme, there's paragraphs. In the, in the storybook by parts of the Bible, they're not paragraphs as much as they're stories. So the story of David and Goliath is a story that's, that's part of the theme of 1 and 2 Samuel. And you have to know the theme of 1 and 2 Samuel and the point of the story. It's not a paragraph as much as a story that sits in there developing the theme. So you have to remember all that and apply it, and you can't discard that stuff. It's just now we're going to be looking at features of narrative that uh, the, the author is using as he writes stories so, and to guide you to his understanding. And so we're going to be... Uh, just tracking ourselves through that, showing you what not to do and then what to do, what, to, what not to do and then what to look for to understand stories correctly. Now, I want to talk about the four types of genre. So if you go back to that page where you kind of had that and then you left a blank space, we're going to fill in that blank space now, uh, and I'm going to talk to you about how the four styles of writing communicate their message. And poetry communicates through figurative and emotional language. So poetry communicates in, in, vividly in, in a figurative language and uh, things that are highly emotional to you as you read them. So you'll get the point of the, of the, of the poet, poet, poet if you move with his emotional movements, right? So here's one, and you're familiar with these. I'm not going to be surprising you with anything. But uh, Psalm 1 is the opening psalm of the 150 hymn, hymn book of Israel. And it's the psalm you're really familiar with. When you come to verse 3, I think it is, it says this. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. And you get the sense, as you're reading this, of something that's good, uh, a tree bearing fruit. Uh, so when I was living in South America, they didn't have uh, orange groves. There were orange trees, grow, they just grow all over. Banana trees grow all over, and if you want a banana, you walk up to a banana tree and you rip a banana off and eat it. Or in orange season, you just go up to any orange tree, pull an orange off, and, and eat it. It, it was, it's a refreshing thing to be on a hot summer day walking along and needing something refreshing to reach up and grab a fresh orange. 
that type of a thing. It's a good thing, we like it, and emotionally we go, oh, that's good. The contrast is also an emotional one. Not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And you've been walking along on a nice uh, country road or a sidewalk or something, the wind blows the dust, it gets in your eyes, and you are aggravated, you're irritated. It's a nasty thing. Well, that's the picture here. On the one hand, you have something that's stable, that's refreshing, and on the other hand, you have this chaff, which is an irritant, and everything about it is negative. Now, that is emotional language. You attach to that emotionally. You've experienced the refreshment of fruit, and you've experienced the irritation of, of dust or, or chaff blowing in your face. You identify with that, but it's on an emotional level. What he's actually saying, if he were to be explicit here, would be that uh, if you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly and the wicked and sit in the seat of the scornful, if you don't do that, you become a prosperous, fruitful person. And if you do walk in those ways, you will blow away and have no impact whatsoever in life. Now that's the explicit statement of this emotional language. Now here's another one. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes. There it is. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Now that's emotional language. It's figurative language. He's not telling you what he's actually saying. He put it in poetic form so that you read it with your emotions, you read it with your imagination, you feel what it's like to ruin yourself. If you're using the English Standard Version, it actually says uh, that he is a cannibal. The fool folds his hands and eats himself. So the fool that sits down and, in idleness ends up consuming himself with idleness. And that's the, that's the picture. It's, a, it's an emotional statement. That's how poetry communicates. Then, of course, there's prophecy. So another of the literary genre in Scripture, the literary styles, is prophecy. So a lot of the Bible is written prophetically. All your, many of your Old Testament prophets are prophetic. Revelation is prophetic. Uh, Peter has some prophecy in it. So a lot of the Bible is prophetic. Matthew has some in it. Some of the prophecy is straightforward. It just comes out and says what it says. For example, Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Genesis 49.10 is very clearly singling out the tribe of Judah, of the tribes of Israel, and saying that out of Judah will come one who is going to have the king's scepter. Right? So Jesus comes in the line of Judah as a son of David, the king, and Jesus inherits that scepter. That's a straightforward uh, prophetical statement in Scripture. However, there is some uh, that is written in apocalyptic style. A lot of prophecy in the Bible is written in what's called apocalyptic style. Here's what that means. 
apocalyptic style describes settings, characters, and events in a way that differs from ordinary reality. In other words, when it communicates apocalyptically, it says things that you are unfamiliar with. So if you've ever read Ezekiel, you remember the Ezekiel's wheel, and it's like a gyroscope in some respects, but it's more than that, and it's hard to figure out what he's writing about. It's, it's, it differs from ordinary reality, and we don't really know much about what's, what it's talking about. Here's an example of that. Revelation 9. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Now, uh, oh, it goes on. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now, I challenge you to tell me what that is. In that day, for certain, they had no clue what that was. Some people in our day say, well, it's just their version of a tank. It's an army full of tanks, and we can stab a guess at that. But it's apocalyptic style. Even our tanks don't have crowns of gold and faces like men, teeth like hair like women, and teeth like lions. He, he's speaking outside of ordinary reality. And when we go to interpret that, we can't say dogmatically, that's a tank. Because we don't know any tanks like that. And we don't know anything like that. So we have to look at it from a different perspective. That's prophecy. It communicates sometimes straightforward, sometimes like that, and we have to deal with it on those terms. What we know is that is not straightforward language. It's outside of anything we have a reference to. And so we have to interpret in that light. Epistle writing communicates explicitly. So this just comes out and tells you what to think. Here's an example Colossians 2, 6, and 7, which we talked about earlier. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul is just explicitly saying, in the same way that you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And that is by faith. So the idea, of course, is that in the epistle writing, he just tells you. And he means what he says and he tells you. When you're reading epistles, you can approach that. When you're reading poetry, you can't go at it in that same way. When you're reading prophecy, you can't go at it in that same way. You've got to go in it from the way of poetry or prophecy. Storytelling is what we're about today. Storytelling uses this technique. Narrative communicates its message by using people and circumstances to make a point. Narrative communicates implicitly. It does not tell you the meaning. It just shows you the meaning by the people and the circumstances. And uh, the point of the story is not directly stated. But 
the author leads the reader to his point without directly stating it. So you go to his point by just reading the story. That's, you get there. You, there's characters you like. There's characters you don't like. There's, there's things that happen that are good and bad, and you end up coming to the conclusion the author wants you to come to because he leads you there through the people and their actions and their circumstances. That's just uh, the way stories work. We're going to be looking at how these stories work and what techniques the author uses. Why it's helpful to know the techniques is so that when you read them, you can identify those techniques and go and follow the author's clues. He writes a lot of things in there that he wants to lead you with, and you get led easier if you know what he's doing to you. And so I'm going to show you some of those uh, as we move through here. But before we go to how he leads you to his conclusion, I want to first of all show you what you cannot do to the stories of the Bible. Now when I tell you this, you're going to say, but that's what I do, or that's what's, that's what's been done. I've heard that. That's my point. These are what you shouldn't do, even though a lot of people do it. It's not the way to read the stories and come to God's point. Your goal is to get to God's point. This is not the way to get to God's point. And so the, the, there's four errors that we're going to talk about. The first one is called allegorizing, but there's four that we're going to cover. Each error is an attempt to make the text relevant to a modern-day audience. The people who use these errors are all trying to read an Old Testament story and say, well, how can I make that applicable to the people I'm talking to? And so what we do is we, we, try, we care more about making it relevant than finding its relevance. When you do this, when you try to make the text relevant, you are going to end up in trouble. You have to come at this saying the text is relevant. I have to identify its relevancy. I have to understand why it's relevant, not make it relevant. It's not what I'm doing to the text. It's what God did to it that I have to identify. That's this whole situation. The first attempt at making it relevant, that is the wrong way to handle the biblical text, is to allegorize the text. I don't know if you know what an allegory is. I'm going to explain that here in a minute. But know that this is a bad one. You don't, this is something you don't want to do. So here's an allegory. An allegory is a story in which people, things, and happenings have another meaning. As if the story were a fable or parable. So when you read a story of the Bible... And you say to yourself, okay, here's the story, but I'm sure there's a hidden meaning, that there's a, a meaning deeper, a deeper meaning, and I have to identify that deeper meaning. You're making an allegory out of that story, but the story is not an allegory. When the Bible uses an allegory, it tells you it's an allegory. If the Bible doesn't tell you it's an allegory, it's not an allegory, and, and you can't make it one. 
So don't look for a hidden meaning. Look for the meaning of what's right there, right? So that's what, a, that's what an allegory is. There's another meaning, and it's a little deeper. So it's the presenting of ideas by means of symbolical narration or description. That's what it is. So everything becomes a symbol. This, is, this story is a symbol for, for something else in our lives. So it's the, it's the method of interpretation that searches beneath the literal meaning for the real meaning. This is what the story really means. When you do that, you're in trouble. It disregards the historical nature of the narrative, attempting to make the details of the text apply to a modern-day audience. In other words, there's this story, but that's unimportant. What's important is what the story symbolizes, what's below this text, and I have to look for that deeper meaning, and that's what's really important about this story. It happens all the time. I'm going to give you a few examples. I don't know what your churches do, but if your churches sing hymns, like mine did when I was your age, you have sung this hymn. This might be completely foreign to you, but if you're of any age to you at all, you know this hymn. It's titled, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, written by Samuel Stennett. And here's the language. Here's the, here's the first stanza. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Has anyone ever sung that song in your church? There's a few hands that have gone up. Okay, I can tell you that that song is a fun song to sing. Uh, I didn't mind it as a kid, but it totally butchers the biblical text. It is not true biblically, and it's an allegory of the story of Israel on the, on the border of, of Canaan on one side of the Jordan River, they're going to cross the Jordan River and they're going to go into the land of Canaan and conquer the land. Okay, so it really happened in history, in Israel, there really was a nation camped on this side of a real river the real river was going to stop flowing upstream and they were going to walk across on dry ground and when they got to the other side, they were going to go in and conquer Jericho and then they were going to fight and conquer the land. That's a real story about real people and real circumstances in a real place. The author took that story and made it about you and your desire to go to heaven. What he's saying is there's a deeper meaning to that story and it has to do with you going to heaven. But it doesn't fit because when the Israelites went across the Jordan River, they had to fight. I don't think there's going to be fighting in heaven. I really don't. I think we're going to really get unity down. There's no bad guys we have to beat. Secondly, Achan stole. Achan stole some of the clothing and, and wealth of Jericho that had been devoted to God, and God had him killed. When I get to heaven, I don't think you're going to steal the gold. When you walk on streets of gold, 
you're not going to be going gold and take a knife out, dig it out, and put it in your pocket. In fact, you don't even care about the gold. It's pavement. Your eyes are going to be up looking at a throne upon which sits your Savior. And gold is not going to matter to you. You might be falling on your knees on that gold, but it will not be to chip some off and put it in your pocket because your eyes will be on Jesus. You won't steal anything. That is not a correct interpretation of what actually happened. And the story of what actually happened does not have a hidden, deeper meaning that's better than the original one. The original one is awesome. So let's learn it the way it was. That's an example of allegory. Here's, a, here's another one. I'm going to just shoot some out at you, right? So <clears throat> here's one you may have heard. Jesus turned the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. When you run out of your resources, Jesus can supply your resources. That's an allegory. You may have heard that taught. It's not what the story is teaching. In fact, we're going to talk about that story later in the day. But it's certainly not talking about Jesus supplied wine for those people, and so Jesus will supply your resources when you run out of them. That's making that story into an allegory about you and your resources. And if you try to teach it that way, it completely breaks down and it fails. Because in the original story, they ran out of wine and then they turned to Jesus. God would never tell you to turn to Jesus when you run out of your resources. God would always tell you, turn to Jesus with or without resources. Learn to be content in whatever state you are in, whether you are hungry or full, whether you have little or much, don't turn to Jesus when you run out because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you and even in times of prosperity, you have to live for Christ. That's a New Testament lesson that has nothing to do with that story the way that story is taught. Okay, so that's one of them. Another allegory, and I heard this sermon, I had a preacher friend, and we were in a golf tournament together, and we were sitting at the meal, and I asked him, it was Saturday night, I asked him, so what are you preaching on? And he said, I have this really cool sermon. I figured out that in the book of Joshua, uh, the mountains and valleys uh, of Joshua are, are the mountains and valleys of a person's life. And so Joshua conquered the valleys, and then he conquered the mountaintops, and you as a Christian sometimes are in the valleys and you need to conquer those. And you, when you get to the hilltop, you've got to conquer those as well. And you've got to live victoriously on the hilltops for Jesus. It was a great lesson, just totally wrong. Because the mountains and valleys in Joshua were real valleys and mountains. And if you go over to, to where they fought that battle, you'll see valleys and you'll see mountains. And Joshua conquered the low plains and then he conquered the high plains, unless it's reverse, I don't know. But he conquered geographically the whole land of Canaan. And it's not a story about you conquering the bad times and the good times of your Christian life. 
This guy's whole sermon was a geographic allegory of the book of Joshua. No, those are real valleys, real mountains, have nothing to do with your spiritual valleys. And don't make them that. Make it the real geography of, of, of the land of Canaan. And that's an allegory. It's taking that story and leaving, discarding the earthly realities of it and trying to make it relevant to a modern-day audience. I can make that story very relevant to you by telling you that every one of God's promises was kept. And God said they were going to conquer the whole land of, Josh, of, of Canaan. They were going to go in and conquer Jericho, a walled city with armed people inside. They had nothing. They walk around the city seven times. They, the walls crash in. They go forward and conquer it. And then they move from there and conquer all the lowlands and then all the highlands. And they conquer the whole land because God is a covenant-keeping God. And that's very relevant to you, that God is a God whose promises never fail. That's important to us. It's very relevant. It has nothing to do with geography. It has to do with the theme of Joshua. So the story is relevant apart from its geography, and that's not an allegory. So that's, uh, that's allegorizing the text, and you want to avoid that at all costs. Okay? Don't do that. It's wrong. Are there any questions on allegories? Okay, the next two are a little confusing between them. So the next two are, are confusing, hard to follow, but I'm going to try to emphasize the difference as I teach it. So this is spiritualizing the text, right? So the next error that you want to avoid is to spiritualize the text. This is what spiritualizing the text is. Spiritualizing is a method of interpretation that, again, discards the earthly, physical, historical reality the text speaks about and crosses the gap to a modern audience with a spiritual analogy of that historical reality. In other words, it draws a comparison between them and us. That's what analogy is. And here's the distinction of spiritualizing. It uses the whole story to make a point. It doesn't just take pieces out of the story. That's the next error. This is using the whole story and spiritualizes the story into a different lesson. So that's what spiritualizing is. It works like this. I'm going to give you some examples, okay? Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus can calm the storms that come up in your life. Okay, you may have heard that taught. That's not the correct understanding of that story. Jesus calmed the storms, you could say is the point of that story. And then it takes that whole point and moves it over to your audience or you by saying, and Jesus will calm your storms. There's a lot of problems with viewing that story this way, uh, as, as, a, as spiritualizing that story. And the reason is, that was a real storm. That was a real storm. Waves, the disciples woke Jesus up and said, Jesus, we're going to drown. We're, we're going down, baby. We know people who have died in storms like this. And here we are in the middle of this storm. We're going down. Uh, the... Uh, uh, 
that is not a storm in your life. A storm in your life is when you're down in the valleys. Uh, circumstances are rotten. You got fired from your job. Your, your girlfriend broke up with you. Your, your dad makes you mow the lawn on Saturday when you want to watch something on TV. Oh, what a terrible storm. Jesus will calm this storm. Really? That's the point of that story? But, but look at it this way. Look at it this way. Do you know anybody that died of cancer? Why didn't Jesus calm that storm? Do you, do you know, have you heard of any Christians in the world who are dying from starvation or, or, or who are locked up in prison and haven't seen their families for decades? Why isn't Jesus calming that storm? If you take that as, and spiritualize that story to Jesus can calm the storms of your life, it's actually saying nothing. Of course Jesus can calm the storms in your life. And if he can, why doesn't he? In fact, it's saying nothing at all if you understand the story that way. Because I know people and I buried my mom and dad. And he did not calm those storms. And I know people suffering. And he's not calming those either. So what's the point? I'm telling you, there's a great point to that story. It's a great point to that story. It's just not that one. That's a misunderstanding. It takes that story and moves it off into a completely different direction than what was intended. Okay, so here's another one. And I heard this sermon, and at the time, I was about your age, and I heard this, and I thought it was one of the best sermons I had ever heard in my life. And then as I grew up and I understood what the story was about, I actually went, I can't believe that guy preached this. So anyway, uh, Jesus fed the 5,000. He took the loaves, he broke the loaves, he prayed, he broke the loaves, then he blessed, no, yeah, he prayed, then he broke the loaves, he blessed the loaves, and he multiplied the loaves. And Jesus wants to take you, break you, bless you, and multiply you. That's spiritualizing. I just took the whole point of that story and made you like bread. So you are like bread. So you are, you are the bread in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And what he did to the bread, he wants to do for you. And if you let him do that to you, you're going to be multiplied. Well, that's, that's a great story. When I heard at your age, I was totally impressed. I think I sat there listening going, okay, Jesus, well, just bless me. Quit the breaking part. Just bless me and move on from there. I don't want the breaking part. And I kind of wrestled with that in my mind as I was listening to it going, well, that sounds good, but I don't like that part of it. Uh, then I understood what stories are intended to do, and I realized that is a crazy interpretation of that story. And he just took that thing and spiritualized it and made it relevant to his audience and uh, just in a powerful, powerful way at the time, wrong from God's perspective. So, uh, so those, are, those are two examples of what spiritualizing does. Are there any questions on spiritualizing? I should probably not ask any questions yet. Let me cover moralizing before I do that. So moralizing is the next error. It's a lot like spiritualizing. 
Okay? The only difference is, instead of taking the whole point of the story, you read it and take pieces out. So you're not worried about the whole story, you're just worried about pieces of the story. And the pieces of the story become major points in your understanding of it. But the whole story can be ignored. And so moralizing is, is this. It draws moral inferences from certain elements in a story. It just grabs certain things and makes points out of them. This happens a lot, by the way, and it's wrong. So it tries to make the text relevant to a modern audience by placing the audience in a similar circumstance to the characters in the story, to the characters in the narrative. So what it does is, those people did this, you're going to do this. That happened to them, this happens to you. Do this like they did, and, and, and if they did this, you should do this. So one of the examples that should have popped into your minds as I was talking is Jonah. God called Jonah to preach. God calls you to preach. Jonah ran. You should not run. When Jonah ran, God appointed a big fish. And you can believe that if you run from God's appointment to preach, God will bring a big fish into your life. We don't know what it looks like, but you will find a big fish. And eventually, Jonah preached anyway. So just preach. Don't run. I just moralized the story of the book of Jonah. And I took the pieces. I left a lot of things out of there. I just grabbed certain things and said, you are like Jonah. Jonah did this. Don't you do this. Jonah did that, do that. That type of a thing. Those are drawing moral inferences. It's bad. It's not intended to be that way. And uh, that's not how you read stories of the Bible. I'll give you a, a, another example. Um, <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fiery furnace and God was with them. You know, you're going to go through a furnace one day and... God will be with you when you go through that furnace too. So, you know, so it's not talking really about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in any sense in the book of Daniel. It's just saying they went into the fire, God was with them and brought them out safe. You'll go into the fire and God will be with you and bring you out safe. And you might raise your hand and go, yeah, but I, what if I die? And well, safety is heaven. Eventually you go to heaven. Even if you die, you'll go to heaven. Well, they didn't even die. They didn't even smell like smoke. It's a different thing, but you're just grabbing pieces and making a point relevant to your audience. That's moralizing, and it's wrong. The story of Shadrach and Meshach is not to teach you that if you go through the fire, God will be with you. In fact, if you remember the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, before they were thrown in the fire, the king said, if you don't bow your knees to me, I will throw you in the fire. And they said, Our God can deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we will never bow. And their response to the king was, Our God might not save us from the fire, but it doesn't matter. We will never bow to you. That's a far cry than teaching the lesson when you go through the fire, God will be with you and you to safety. 
That's not, in fact, with their understanding at all. And it's teaching something completely different in the context of the book of Daniel. That's moralizing. So allegorizing is when everything represents something else. Spiritualizing is when, when the whole story has a spiritual point that's different. Moralizing is when you're just grabbing pieces out of the story and throwing them in over here into your audience. Every single one of those things is to try to take that Old Testament story or that story written over 2,000 years ago and make it relevant to a modern-day audience. So you're trying to say, as it stands by itself, it's not relevant. I have to make it relevant, so I have to come up in, with a with this special way it connects. Really, it connects. You just have to find out how it connects, and we'll talk about that here momentarily. There is a fourth error, and then you'll get a shot at asking any questions if you want any of them. And it's this one, and I know this one too is common, and uh, I, I hope not to offend people with it, but it's imitating Bible characters. This is the fourth error, and um, um, it's making the lesson of the story to be like one or not to be like one of the characters in the story. So, so this is a story, and you should be like so-and-so. Or here's a story, and you shouldn't be like so-and-so. But your goal is to read the story, see the human character, and then you have to be or not be like that human character. That is the wrong way of understanding the Bible. That's not why it's written, and don't go in that direction. Now, in fact, uh, there's a few that are real common, which I'm going to bring up here in a minute, but the Bible would be very clear on this. If you're supposed to be like anybody, who are you supposed to be like? Christ, right? All of us would go, be like Christ. All right. I would say that the Bible would very clearly say, be Christ-like. But it would not say, be like Daniel. But we've probably all heard the lesson, Daniel prayed three times a day. And you should be like Daniel. And you should pray three times a day, or all the time. Be like Daniel. Well, the Bible's not saying that. And if you read the book of Daniel, it's the lesson of the story of Daniel praying is not so that you would model Daniel and pray. The lesson of Daniel actually teaches us a lesson of God. And it's teaching you something about God. And if you understand God like Daniel understood God, you will become a person of prayer like Daniel was. But the, the goal of the story is not to say, be like Daniel and pray. The goal of Daniel is to say, understand your God. And if you know what your God is like, you will pray to him. That's the lesson of Daniel. But, but I've heard this taught. And as part of my master's research, I had to research Sunday school material. And a lot of the Sunday school companies teach this lesson to junior kids by the, by the heading, be like Daniel and pray. And it's, it's wrong. It's not what it's talking about. Another one is David. And, and you've probably said to yourself, I want to be a man after God's own heart like David was. 
That's not the point of David, nor is it the point that God intended you to come to when he said that David was a man after his own heart. That is not the point of that story. And David is not your model. David was an adulterous murderer. And if you say, I want to be like David, you are off base. Jesus is the one you should be like. And the Bible is not saying be like David. So don't make the story of David to be summarized around the lesson to be like David. It's the wrong lesson. And there's another one that I heard, and it's really, it's really, it was powerful at the time, and again, I realized it was wrong. Hannah had Samuel, and she dedicated Samuel to the Lord. Therefore, when you have children, you should dedicate them to the Lord. Because that's what Hannah, who was righteous, did. So that's what you, who are righteous, should do too. Therefore, dedicate your kids. Well, that's true. Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And you as a parent should probably recognize that your child is going to be in the Lord's hands and you want to raise them to be godly and you might have a thing of dedication, but it's not because Hannah did it. And the goal isn't to be like Hannah and dedicate your children. That's not the point of that story. It's a much bigger story. And in fact, Hannah's dedication of Samuel teaches the same lesson of the story of David and Goliath. They're in the same book talking about the same theme. And the lesson of Hannah and Samuel and the lesson of David and Goliath blend together to teach the lesson of First and Second Samuel. It's not to be like David or to be like Hannah. It's something much bigger and much better than that. Okay? Four errors to avoid Avoid them at all costs. When someone does them in your hearing and you're listening to them, kind of exit out and try to get to the heart of the story, which I'm going to show you after lunch. But the four errors are allegorizing, spiritualizing, moralizing, and imitating Bible characters. They're very common and they're very wrong. Don't do it.